Welcome back to the Outcomes Rocket. Today I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Ronald Hale. He is the Network Medical Director for Radiation Oncology at Kettering Cancer Care in Kettering, Ohio. Dr. Hale is board certified in radiation oncology and has more than 23 years of highly specialized experience in the specialties of radiation oncology, including adaptive radiation therapy, brachytherapy, and brain radiosurgery as well as public health and preventive medicine. His career in Dayton began in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in 2005 after losing nearly everything to Hurricane Katrina, including his home and practice location while stationed at Kessler Air Force Base on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. He subsequently designed and supervised the construction of the 88th Medical Group Cancer Center, Care Center and served as its first director until his retirement in 2011 with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Culminating 24 years of Air Force service, Dr. Hale is the medical director for a busy radiation oncology department consisting of a robust brachytherapy program, gamma knife, and five practice locations. Today, we're going to be diving into thinking differently, doing better, planning versus preparation. And it's such a privilege to, to have Dr. Hale here with us. And with that, I want to I wanna give you a warm welcome, Dr. Hale. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Yes, sir. And so uh, as, we, as we dive into some of the topics that are near and dear to your heart, uh, firstly, just want to say thank you for your service. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's such a privilege to, to have somebody like you that, that will both you know, work uh, on behalf of, of the people of the U.S. and then continue to serve as a, as a physician. So I want to start by saying thank you. Well, thank you very much. It was a wonderful time and I would do it again in a heartbeat. That's wonderful. As, as you think about your career, Dr. Hale, what would you say got you into the medical sector? Well, I originally started out as an aerospace engineering student in college uh, when I had an epiphanal moment and decided I wanted to be a physician and transferred from my engineering program to a biology program and uh, got into medical school. I finished medical school and I really liked everything. I couldn't decide on a specialty. And uh, so I did a transitional internship, exposing me to all different disciplines. And uh, one day as working as a flight surgeon, so that's essentially a primary care physician for pilots and their families, a Keesler Air Force Base in San Antonio, uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I really enjoyed the public health and preventive medicine uh, aspect of the job and did a residency at Johns Hopkins in that, got a master's of public health. And it worked for several years as a public health specialist uh, at uh, various bases. My dad was diagnosed with kidney cancer when he turned 60, and uh, he had a basically terminal diagnosis. The cancer had metastasized to his lungs. Um, at the time I was uh, at the time of his diagnosis, I was still at Hopkins, and uh, was able to get a little bit of guidance for his treatment. And there weren't a lot of treatments available at that time, but essentially we had the kidney removed, and he went on a very primitive form of immunotherapy that was later shown not to be effective in clinical trial. But for him, for whatever reason, it started working, the tumor started shrinking. We had one tumor remaining on each lung and uh, he had to come off the immunotherapy for toxicity issues. Um, A new metastatic lesion formed in the center part of the chest, mediastinum. And we serendipitously found out about a technique called stereotactic body radiosurgery that was being used by Dr. Gil Lederman at Staten Island University, sort of adapting what Timmerman, Dr. Timmerman was doing at Indiana University, uh, but applying them to patients with limited metastatic disease. 
So he had that treatment really against the advice of a lot of his treating physicians and uh, it cleared his disease. And so 23 years later, he's still alive and uh, been tumor free. So again, there was an epiphanal moment um, when I was uh, down at San Antonio uh, working as a preventive uh, medicine specialist, epidemiologist at Lackland Air Force Base that I wanted to be a radiation oncologist. And so somewhat mid-career, I um, switched and uh, did another residency at University of Rochester. They were one of the two facilities that had a new uh, LINEC uh, that was specially designed for radiosurgery treatment and studied with Dr. Paul Kuniev and Phil Rubin, and uh, it was fantastic training. And uh, I really since then have felt that uh, that was in fact my true calling. Wow. Wow. That's a, what a, what a, what a story, Dr. Hale. And, and uh, I'm so glad that your father, you know, made it, he's still with us. And uh, your, your career has been filled with these epiphanal moments and, and, you know, it's interesting to hear the courage that you've had to actually listen to those moments because, you know, I feel like oftentimes we don't listen to those moments. What is it that, that gave you the, the courage to change when things were going well and what you were doing already? Well, a couple of things. So I believe that we personally develop by continually getting out of our comfort zones. And I think mm-hmm. the military taught me that very well, that we grow as human beings when we have the courage to step outside of our comfort zones. It's also partly based on advice that my stepdad, uh, who was an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, gave me early on. And he used to tell me pretty routinely that um, you don't lead life, life leads you. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think with that wisdom, Um, and the notion of getting out of your comfort zones, I kind of embraced life with this idea that there is a destiny for each one of us. And when we have that destiny revealed to us, it really becomes the courage to embrace the destiny. We have the free will to walk away from it. And uh, and sometimes when we do that, we are repeatedly reintroduced to what our destiny is. Hmm. And it's these opportunities that pop up out of nowhere that seem like they take you in a completely divergent direction from where you think that you're going, that are really the opportunities in life. And so that has been my guiding light uh, through this whole experience. Wow, that's brilliant. And I love your, your stepdad's uh, rec- you know, uh, belief that you don't lead life, life leads you. Uh, and you got to take action when you see those moments, and especially when they continue showing up to you, listeners. Uh, so what would you say, Dr. Hale, is a hot topic? that needs to be on health leaders' agendas today, and how are you approaching it? Well, um, the way we have been doing business, the business of healthcare, is not sustainable. Uh, It's not sustainable economically, and really for the amount of effort, money, uh, investment that we're making in healthcare, we're not in this country really seeing the kinds of health outcomes that are commensurate with the level of investment that we have. And so uh, things need to change and change has to happen at all levels. It's not an issue of spending less. It's an issue of improving the efficiency and the effectiveness of healthcare delivery. And so in that regard, everything needs to be on the table from the ground up in how we conduct the business of healthcare, how we take care of patients, about really integrating the continuum of, of the continuum of prevention. That most of what we do in healthcare is really what we consider tertiary prevention. What I mean by this is we think about the continuum of prevention. Let's say that we have uh, an entity of cervical cancer, uh, which can can shorten a person's life or certainly take away the quality of life. The opportunities to prevent that from happening uh, 
lie along this continuum of prevention where we've got primary preventive efforts such as the Gardasil vaccine, which could prevent the disease from happening in the first place, where we have screening where we can detect the disease at a subclinical time and mitigate the morbidity and mortality associated with it, or if in fact it becomes clinically apparent the tertiary prevention is optimizing the treatment, that means properly diagnosing, having properly staged the patient, and then deliver the proper treatment to mitigate the morbidity and mortality associated. We, in at least in the United States, have not done a very good job integrating this continuum of prevention and seeing everything that shortens a person's life or threatens more mortality or morbidity, really, really, quality of life, lies on a continuum of prevention and that there are opportunities along the way and that investing on the left side of the continuum where we can prevent the disease and mitigate the effects, not even let it happen, uh, yield big bang for our buck. And I think that's where healthcare in this country is going to need to go in the future. Well, I think it's really interesting, uh, Dr. Hale, the perspective that you bring with the many different hats that you've worn, you know, as a, as a preventative physician, public health specialist, and now oncologist, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating how all of these worlds are, are, are converging. And, and this, con- this idea of the continuum of health prevention is a very fascinating one. And, and I'd love to hear what you are doing in your practice or at the, at the facilities that you work to, to help move toward that direction. So there are two primary ways uh, that, that I am doing this on a, on a daily basis. So one is I am the, the chair of our cancer committee, which really looks at the, the programmatic issues of our cancer program and the network, looking at opportunities to integrate the continuum of prevention for the population of patients that, are, that we are responsible for here in the Southwest Ohio area. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is that I am absolutely a practitioner of tertiary prevention. So patients that come to me have cancer already. And so how do we optimize the treatment of their cancer in order to mitigate the morbidity and mortality associated with their diagnosis? And this is where we come into the concept of uh, decreasing variability and and improving safety, the culture of safety, through the use of care paths, the delivery of cancer treatment uh, with care paths. And so back from my days as a flight surgeon, we used to somewhat jokingly say uh, that uh, pilots that fly airplanes by memory crash. Uh, Pilots don't fly an airplane by memory. They have checklists. Uh, There's even a checklist to go to the bathroom so that you don't inadvertently get up, uh, go to the bathroom and leave the autopilot off. Uh, Everything is checklist based. And so in medicine, uh, very much the same concepts apply. Um, When we use this concept of a care pass to deliver a treatment, then what I mean by this is, for instance, instead of prescribing radiation for a uh, breast cancer patient, I would prescribe a care pass for the treatment of an early stage left-sided breast cancer patient that includes not only the radiation dose, but the localization uh, parameters for that treatment, the constraints for the healthy tissue to avoid the uh, radiation uh, to treat those areas, uh, the orders that my nurse could execute in the event that the patient has skin redness or whatnot uh, that are evidence-based according to our current nursing guidelines, the supporting documentation for what we're doing, the supporting coding for uh, the uh, requisite coding for what we're doing, uh, and also the safety checklist so that in order to move from step A to step Step B, uh, the items such as obtaining a pregnancy test at the time of treatment planning uh, is done in order to move forward. 
So by integrating the best practices for delivering the treatment with the safety checklist, we have a care path. Hmm. And so care paths can be done in a number of different ways, but we now have the technology uh, that's able to use our electronic medical records. And instead of us working for the electronic medical record, we get the electronic, me electronic medical record working for us, where we can actually bake in the safety checklists and these care paths so that patient presents to us with early stage left side of breast cancer, the courses prescribed, and really for the majority of patients, uh, this is going to be perfectly appropriate treatment. So it's the Pareto principle that by a small intervention like this, we can standardize the care for the bulk of the patients that come through. Now there are going to be patients that will not uh, fall under uh, a care pass exactly that will need modification. And that's where I need to be investing my time, not right. on the things that we are doing routinely every day, but to invest my time on the cases that are more difficult that need my one-on-one -on -one interaction because of a peculiar situation. I think that's a, a brilliant way to do it. And these, these prescribed care paths with checklists are a fantastic way for, for you to really, you know, uh, give the thought that uh, to, to those specific cases that need that thought. Uh, I think it's a really great way to do it. Your example of, of, of a pilot that flies by memory is going to crash is a really vivid example of what, what does happen and can happen in, in, in care every single day. If you had to point to a setback that you've had that you learned so much from Dr. Hale, what would that be and what did you learn from it? So a couple of things. Um, one is that uh, we have a group of physicians, we have a practice and it's mm -hmm. not so much a setback, but a challenge. And so uh, in order to do this, uh, you have to have a group of people and not just your physicians, but really it has to be everyone involved uh, that can that has the capability to come to consensus. Mm -hmm. Consensus is not um, majority rules. Consensus is not unanimity. Consensus is that everybody can live with this decision. Okay. Well, in order to be able to have a team that comes to consensus, the team has to form as a team. And when we think of the four stages of team formation with the forming, the storming, norming and performing stages of team formation. A huge challenge so far has been in my three years here, getting my team assembled and working them through these four stages of team development so that we can come to the point of building consensus. That has been a major challenge. It's something that we at this point have momentum in the positive direction, but it is a, it is a big challenge that I think you have to acknowledge up front. The other is that it's a paradigm shift for our folks in information systems where, uh, you know, we're not here for the information system. The information system is here for us. And to get the pieces in place for the information system that truly support the, uh, the evidence-based care path delivery of our services. And so a uh, couple things needed to happen. We needed software developed and we also needed on our end, our information uh, team, information systems team to uh, to put the pieces in place in order to implement uh, the delivery of these care paths. Those have been pretty substantial challenges and setbacks really uh, over the course of the past three years. Well, you know, it's, uh, it sounds like you have a firm grip on them. You, you know what they are, but you're consistently making strides toward, toward getting it done and getting your entire team on, on, this, uh, on this care pathway 
uh, model. And, uh, and so I'd like to hear what you believe, Dr. Hale, is one of the proudest experiences that you've had to date. Certainly. So um, I would say that when we first conceived of uh, what a software application would look like to support uh, the evidence-based delivery of a care path for mm -hmm. the treatment of cancer with radiation, that at the point where I actually saw the functioning software, the way we had envisioned it as it was demonstrated to us, um, I think was probably the most exciting thing uh, because it was a concept um, and to see this concept come to fruition through the wor hard work of many, many people uh, was, was absolutely amazing. And I, I would have to say that that was, that was really the, a, a, a very important highlight. I think of being able to make advancement and really anything that we do in life, but in healthcare in particular, is there's two ways to make advancement and grow. And, and one is, is sort of what I call this amoeboid growth, where we, we are where we are now, and we sort of blob out in different directions, that, picking low-hanging fruit and just like growing by default um, in sort of paths of least resistance. Mm -hmm. But that's not probably the best way to do this. I think the really the best way to, to get something remarkably done is kind of like what the farmer used to do in the old days, would walk to the end of the field and drive a stake into the ground, go back to the plow and drive the plow to the stake, not taking his or her eyes off of the stake. Mm -hmm. That would establish your first straight line. And from there, the, the field would be plowed uh, in an orderly fashion. And I think for remaking our healthcare delivery in anything that we do, we need to envision um, the end state of what we want to achieve in two years, five years, 10 years, what we want to look like, and then driving the organization to that endpoint. It's a completely different concept than this sort of amoeboid growth that we've grown so accustomed to. And this is the thing that makes great things happen. You know, we would not have the iPhone and, and other amazing things unless people had the, the vision and the tenacity uh, to, uh, to grow and develop things in this type of a fashion. And so when we saw the software uh, developed and demonstrated, uh, it was one of those moments that it was extremely satisfying to see that this come to fruition. Wow, that's uh, fabulous. And, and when, when did you guys finish the, the software? So the software, software is ready for testing uh, February of this year. Um, wow. We have a couple of sites uh, that have implemented the software. Uh, I believe Yale and Thomas Jefferson have gone live with it. Um, we have been working on content uh, tirelessly, uh, which really means taking all of our diagnoses, you know, left side early stage breast cancer, right side early stage breast cancer, everything uh, basically that we treat, and going through in a very systematic fashion, um, working through process and content. Um, because once the software is deployed, uh, we need to be able for practices to take their processes with a shell of process in the software and be able to e easily adapt it. Because ultimately, when you're looking at the delivery of what you do, this is going to be an iterative project so that sure. you, you, uh, you know, try something, 
um, you, you, you format the software to do what you think you want to do, and you test it and you see, and then you have to go back and you have to make tweaks. And this has to be done at the user level. So this can't be, you know, you have to bring a, a programmer in or a functional expert in to make these modifications. So part of this software working and supporting uh, the people who do this is that it has to be able to be adjusted and tweaked on the fly. So uh, software started going live in February. We've been working on the content uh, tirelessly. We're getting great reports back from the, the two sites uh, that have been using at least the, the whiteboard uh, part of this. Uh, the whiteboard meaning uh, the ability to look at our impanelment of patients. So when we think about the delivery of a radiation oncology treatment course, uh, we're talking about the episode of care, uh, which for instance, if you go to the pediatrician for your child, you know, it's the episode of care is maybe a half hour from the time you check in to check out, leave with a prescription. In radiation treatment, it's different. Uh, the episode of care begins with the initial consultation, stretches through the simulation, treatment planning, treatment delivery, and out to what we call the end of the global period, which is three months after the completion of the course. So our episode mm -hmm. of care lasts for several months. The patients that are all in our clinic during this episode of care is what we refer to as, a, as our impanelment. Mm -hmm. To know where those patients are at each moment during the process is critical. We need to have an understanding of who's waiting for simulation, who's waiting for their treatment plan, who's waiting for insurance approval, uh, so that we move the patients through efficiently. Down the hall, we have a multi-million dollar machine that we didn't maximize the time of the patients on that machine. So it's imperative that we know where those patients are. So the software also provides us, in addition to the, the ability to execute care paths to decrease variability, improve safety, the ability to track patients through the episode of care and manage those patients actively. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. Visibility to that patient uh, stage is critical, increasing safety, reducing variability. And, and, you know, this idea of care pathways that, you know, prescribing those really opens it up to, to not uh, falling, falling prey to that, the, the just, you know, one size fits all. Uh, how does this tie into the, the rising wave of precision medicine? Uh, well, it does in a very nice way, actually. So yeah, precision medicine is an, is a wonderful new, uh, really a new concept um, and, you know, there's this notion and you see billboards around town, uh, there's no routine breast cancer, what have you. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that um, for the majority of patients, uh, let's say that have um, low risk prostate cancer, early stage breast cancer, there are very well established consensus guidelines for how that cancer should be treated. And these guidelines have been around for many years. They're published as the NCCN guidelines, which is a collaborative effort among all the major cancer centers in the country, where in fact their functional experts have come together, reviewed the literature, and periodically update the guidelines to render an opinion on how any type of given cancer should be treated. And so what we're really talking about is establishing a care path that supports the evidence-based delivery of treatment, really according to what we consider are the gold standard of guidelines, the NCCN guidelines. Now, precision medicine comes into place at various points along those guidelines. So there are times where, uh, you know, germline testing or molecular testing is necessary in order to better understand um, whether, for instance, this systemic therapy is better than the other, systemic therapy is indicated altogether, um, and what have you. But again, that in and of itself 
it can be baked into the guidelines so that a patient who has a glioblastoma, which is a, a, a very serious type of a brain tumor, has the appropriate testing done to make determination about the tumor that, that ha will have an influence not just on prognosis, but also on some treatment parameters. So in some regards, you could think of the delivery of treatment through the use of care pads is limiting precision medicine, but in, in the way I see it, it enhances our ability to do precision medicine insofar as that every patient will have the appropriate testing done right. that will fine tune the treatment they should be getting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I could see how it enables the use of precision medicine. So I'd like to circle back for just a moment because we were talking about redoing how we deliver healthcare insofar as uh, the cost of healthcare, uh, decreasing variability, improving outcomes, and how this relates in at least what we do in radiation oncology. Sure. So there's a sea shift that, that's really underway with regard to the delivery of radiation oncology. The former model was we basically got paid every time we turned the machine on, we got paid for that. And mm -hmm. so it encouraged very long fraction schedules, uh, 33 to 35 treatments for breast cancer, you know, 45 treatments for prostate cancer, et cetera. Every time we treated, uh, we were basically rewarded. Well, a couple of important things are happening. One is uh, a fundamental change in the way we're looking at compensation for the treatment of cancer with radiation. Um, right now, there's active discussion with the use of alternative payment models, where instead of being paid per click of the machine going on, we're paid for a person's diagnosis. If the patient has breast cancer, that basically things are bundled together and we're paid for the treatment of that breast cancer. But also at the same time, we've got a better understanding regarding how many treatments and, and what are called what we call dose fraction schedules for radiation are, are necessary. And so what we've been seeing is what I think of as shrinking, collapsing dose fraction schedules, where for prostate cancer, instead of treating 45 uh, fractions that for many patients, they perhaps can receive five or 20 fractions. Uh, for breast cancer, reducing from 28 to 33 treatments down to 15 or 20 fractions. Uh, for palliative patients, instead of receiving 10 fractions, receiving just one or five mm -hmm. fractions. So the shift there then becomes uh, getting patients through the department with fewer fractions means putting more patients through the department because to be economically viable, to succeed in this type of environment, we need a higher throughput through the clinic. If they're spending less time on the machine, the real cost then to delivering this treatment is getting the patient processed through. It's kind of the difference between a, a long stay versus a short stay hotel. Mm -hmm. The expense in putting a guest in a room is turning over the room, the housekeeping and whatnot. Uh, if you have a patient that comes in, or if you have a guest in a hotel that comes in for a couple of weeks, you're turning the room over once. If the guest stays for a night or two, you're turning that room over many more times. It's the same right. concept with what we're doing. Hmm. So the delivery of our, our uh, care pass, uh, a base treatment allows us to, first of all, really understand what is the cost involved in getting the patient on treatment. Now, that's important for us to, to be able to negotiate contracts favorably, but also we can get that patient on treatment with a lower cost, the human capital cost, the cost that it takes for me to use my time to get that patient on treatment. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of consequences to, to changing the paradigm with regard to how we deliver radiation, 
which supports a more cost-effective model uh, for the use of radiation. Stereotactic radiosurgery is a way to treat definitively with between one to five treatments. Uh, and so we've seen a huge uptick in the patients that are receiving this type of treatment. Uh, those patients still require a consult note, treatment planning, all the other things that go with it. And so through the use of our, our software called Smart Clinic, uh, this is, uh, is something that's greatly facilitating our ability to get patients into treatment efficiently and quickly. Well, I definitely want to just recognize you for and your team, you and your team for all the work that you guys have done in the development of Smart Clinic. There's no doubt that there's a changing tide and uh, folks, Dr. Hale is, is providing us some, some insights into how we could take care of our oncology patients better. Now, if, if, uh, if the people listening are on the provider side and are curious and want to learn more about potentially how to get engaged with this program, this software, What's the best way for them to, to connect with you or, or your team? Um, I think probably it'd be welcome to email me. Um, it would be fine. And, um, and then we can, uh, you know, set up a phone conversation or what have you. But I really encourage this. I think that, um, that talking about these issues um, is a great way to start. And, and it gets you thinking creatively. And every time I talk to someone... I learned something as well because that person brings me different insight and viewpoints and maybe there are things that I haven't thought about. So I, I absolutely encourage that. Yes. Outstanding. And folks in the show notes, we'll leave a way for you to contact Dr. Hale. Uh, just go to outcomesrocket.health and in a search bar, type in Hale, H-A-L-E. You'll find the entire transcript, show notes, and contact there. Getting to the lightning round, Dr. Hale, we'll do that, followed by a book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Yes. All right. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? The best way is to know what you don't know. I think that the cost in not having the types of outcomes we want to have is really not understanding the pieces of information that we're missing. So I think that's a great way to start. It's all about metrics. We need to know what we don't know. What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? The biggest mistake is to think that you have something mastered. Um, every time you have an achievement, you have things that are lurking that you are unaware of uh, that could potentially uh, to take you down. That there are unintended consequences with every course of action and to anticipate, to be prepared. As we said earlier in the, yeah. in the discussion, be, being prepared immunizes you from changes that are unanticipated. And you, you, you did mention, uh, thank you for that. And you, you did mention sort of the, the difference between uh, preparation and planning. What would you say the distinction there is? Planning connotes that you have an expectation for what the future is going to look like and you're setting up your current uh, situation, your current environment to support some kind of a future that you think is going to come about. Uh -huh. Preparation is different. Preparation is, for instance, uh, being well-read, uh, mm. being physically fit, about mm. having a practice that has tight electronic medical record, that has proper documentation, about having all of those elements in place so that when opportunities appear in the future, you're able to jump on those opportunities. Because remember we said early on 
that life leads you. And so this is going to be yes. an exercise where opportunities pop up and it will be the prepared that are able to leverage and take advantage of those opportunities. Wow. Love that. That's a great way to articulate that, Dr. Hale. Uh, folks, be prepared. That's uh, bottom line. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? Um, great question too. So um, you have to be able to read the environment. You have to be able to watch what is happening around you. I call this situational awareness. Mm -hmm. I think about back in the days in the cockpit as a flight surgeon, that pilots did something called cross-check. Even if you're flying by visual flight rules, you're looking out the window, that you're ch still checking your instruments to make sure that your airspeed, your attitude, your altitude, everything is in check. And it's the same thing that we must do. We need to look at our competitor. We need to look at the advertising. We need to look at the data uh, from internal. We need to look at internal data. We need to look at population trends. You need to be looking at all of this and understanding and cross-checking to make sure that if something seems like it's an outlier, that you're not dismissing that necessarily, that you're understanding why that piece of data is, is not reading right. I think the biggest hazard in not staying relevant is losing your situational awareness. Hmm. Wow. And the question that comes to mind is, what am I not seeing? What do I not know? Um, well, uh, in terms of uh, my situation right now, what do I not see or what do I not know? Oh, well, yeah, I guess I'm just, I'm just uh, thinking like as, as the listeners think about, you know, what you've sort of discussed, yeah. Yeah, you know, asking those questions so that they could, you know, not, not miss those. I got it. Okay. So yeah. a, a useful exercise is, is to first, you have to have a good grasp of what you do know, and you have to mm -hmm. have a thorough understanding of your metrics and what you do know. And then it's useful to take your team and brainstorm and say, okay, let's think of all of the things, all of the areas where we could be surprised of, of situations that could pop up that, that just take us by surprise. Yes. These are the outlier data kinds of things. The things that, um, you know, that, that we're not contemplating right now, but maybe in a brainstorming session, somebody comes up with something, you have to have a culture where every person is valued. And so the, yes. the kind of the craziest thing that comes out then we just ponder it, we consider it, and we put that on the back burner so that we're aware of these elements. Um, the other thing is you've got to have a, a quest for data, is that you have to look for evidence. Uh, you can't make assumptions. You have to change the assumptions into facts by acquiring the data to either support the assumption or refute it. Love it. A great exercise. And what would you say is one area of focus that drives everything in your organization? A one area of focus is a collective vision. So I think that it's important as a leader, like putting that stake at the end of the field to continually articulate the future state. Now I'm not talking about, again, plans. I'm talking about a model, a concept of how we want to do this. Uh, articulating that repeatedly to drive the organization to make, remake ourselves and what we want to be in the future. And that would be uh, you know, the place, the, a nationally recognized, and this is what I tell my folks repeatedly, that our vision within the decade is to be a nationally recognized center of excellence for the delivery of community oncology. Hmm. And they hear me say that again and again. What is it going to take to make us that? And that has been the single most powerful coalescing factor for our team. Wow. 
that's a great vision. It doesn't get any clearer than that stake at the end of the field. You're doing such a great job, Dr. Hale, and uh, really appreciate the insights. Uh, before we conclude, I, I, I'd love if you could just share your your book, favorite book that you recommend to the listeners, and then we could conclude with a closing thought. Oh, gosh. Well, I, this goes back a few years, and it was a book probably that really influenced my life in every way in terms of being prepared. Mm -hmm. And you know, I went through the Air Force at a time when we had this this uh, quality Air Force initiative. And one of the books that I read early on that really made an impression on me was Covey's Seven Habits. Oh. And I think even if you don't do the seven habits, it gives you a great set of ideas for how to make yourself personally prepared for a changing future. Because really, that's a book about preparation. That's one of my favorites. Oh, what a great recommendation, Dr. Hale. And, uh, and, and so what a, what a fantastic conversation with you today. We've, we've covered so many valuable, valuable points from building teams to thinking differently and, and reforming the way that we treat uh, uh, patients with radiation oncology. I can't thank you enough uh, and, and really would love if you could just leave us with the closing thought. Absolutely. So um, the time is now to adapt and change, that um, our lives are very short. We're here for a very short period of time. Uh, the time to engage and do this isn't tomorrow, it's not next year, it's right now, because the moments are fleeting, and uh, before we know it, we're done, and, and uh, we pass the torch to somebody else. So I, I implore the folks listening that, um, that uh, the, the concept of carpe diem, seize the day, this is the opportunity right now dig in, make a change, start today. Love it, Dr. Hale. Uh, again, just uh, want to thank you for your inspirational leadership and your, your, your clinical uh, expertise here. And uh, with that, uh, just want to say a big thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.